You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. All right, let's move into chapter 33. 33 is uh, where the exiles in Babylon are getting the report that Jerusalem has fallen. As we read, as a reader, I mean, we've been told this already a few chapters ago. We get that insight. They didn't have that at that time. But as we read, we're going to get some kind of familiar sounding, this is why this all happened kind of stuff from Ezekiel, from the Lord, which is pretty common in this book. And there's some pretty significant prophetic stuff happening as well, future telling stuff that we'll get into. Now, we begin with the metaphor of the watchman. We've had this before, back in chapter 3, and it gets revised here again. Let's read it. Ezekiel 33, we'll begin reading verses 1 to 9. The prophet says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Speak to your people and say to them, When I bring the sword against a land, and the people of the land choose one of their men and make, them, make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, Then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their lives, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. And if they had had heeded the warning, they would all be saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, That person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sins, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do not warn the, the wicked person to turn from their sins, and they do not do so, they will die for their sins, though you yourself will be saved. A watchman, as we already have dealt with a few chapters ago, is a sentry, a security guard, so to speak, stationed at a major city's ancient gates. From other scriptures, we learn what they do. From 2 Samuel 18 to 24, we learn that a watchman is always stationed around the walls of the city. Usually one for each gate if it's a big city. In 2 Kings 9.17, we are told that some cities have watchmen in towers. Well, Jerusalem, given its size, had both. Well, these watchmen were usually young men, probably so that they wouldn't be napping when they were on duty, right? Old guys would be in a habit of doing that maybe. So these were young men. They were sharp. They had good eyesight. They were diligent. They were alert. And when they were, they were appointed to sound the alarm, blow the trumpet, just like we read, when the city is threatened. Now, if they neglected or failed in their duties, then the blood of the city would be on their heads. In other words, but if they sounded the alarm and no one responded, then they would be innocent of the blood of the city. So with Ezekiel as Israel's watchman, as from chapter 3, God is saying that as their prophet, he delivered his message faithfully. So the consequences of Israel ignoring the warnings was now on them. Ezekiel was innocent. 
As we pointed out back in chapter 3, believers today have the responsibility, the duty to be watchmen, to warn those in their life network, those closest to them, that God is coming, either in judgment or in blessing, depending on their allegiance to God. Our responsibility is to warn and to proclaim and to be as persuasive as possible to as many people as possible, giving them warning and how to escape God's judgment. But how that message is received, well, that's beyond our control. Now, here in chapter 33, where the watchmen, who, where are the watchmen of Jerusalem? Well, there aren't any anymore, are there? Are they? Because the city has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. The watchman and anyone in the city is gone. And if there aren't any walls, then there can't be any watchmen. So perhaps chapter 33 is more of a God kind of re-justifying again to Israel why the city was destroyed and whose fault it was. Ezekiel wasn't at fault, as we just read, because as we learn in verse 7, he warned the people. Yahweh wasn't at fault because he sent Ezekiel to warn the people, but they refused to listen. So ultimately, it was Israel's fault. And as a result, Jerusalem and her temple are gone. Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city for a third time, and now finally, 586, it's been laid bare. But like anyone wrestling with the guilt of self-inflicted tragedy, self-pity sets in. And at first, during the sieges, when it was all coming down, literally, it seemed like Israel was kind of coming to their senses, but just a bit. Listen to verse 10. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you were to say. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How, can, how then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their wicked ways and live. Turn, turn from your wicked ways, your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? It makes no sense, in other words. So for the first time since the book opened, the exiles seem to be kind of conscious of their sin against the Lord. Conscious, yes. Repentant, no. Otherwise, Yahweh would have followed up with a call to repent as he does in verse 11. In other words, Yahweh says, if you finally get it, people, if you finally realize that you've sinned against me, that all of this is upon you because you were unfaithful to me, then repent. You don't have to live out this ending. You know that I do not delight in this. So show me more than just remorse. Show me repentance. It brings up a good question for us. Do you know the difference between remorse and repentance? Think about that. Do you know the difference between remorse and repentance? I think anyone who anyone is familiar with the moment, the feeling of having disobeyed a command of God. So what do you do with that? Most times I think, at least in the moment anyway, we say, sorry God, I'll try to do better next time. But if sin is repetitive, then what? As Christians, when we engage in sin, we know that our proper response is to repent. And what exactly is, then, repentance? And how does repentance help in the grand scheme of all this? Well, repentance is first being able to admit, Lord, I've sinned against you. Being sorrowful or regretting a sin that you've committed 
is a good thing. But as the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, he points out that there are really two types of sorrow for sin. There's godly sorrow that leads to salvation. And then there's ungodly or worldly sorrow that leads to death. Let me read it for you. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. The key to this is that godly sorrow brings repentance. And that is the way to salvation. Worldly sorrow does not. And that means that without repentance, there is no salvation. It it doesn't matter how sorry we are, remorse or sorrow for sin doesn't correct the sin we've committed. See, here's the thing. Neither does obedience. We sometimes think it does. Typically, in Christian circles, we think of repentance as a, as a change of direction, a 180-degree turn away from sin, like saying no to sin, and instead turning away in, rebe- in obedience to the Lord. And if we can just keep on obeying the Lord, well, then we've got this thing licked. And you know what? On a good day, we can all will ourselves not to sin in a particular way when, when tempted to sin. Again, but that doesn't deal with the violation that we've already committed. We haven't corrected the sin that we've already committed. The solution to our sin problem and its consequence of divine judgment isn't to improve our behavior. The solution is to repent and find salvation. True repentance, then, is first an acknowledgement of the sin committed for which a godly sorrow follows, saying something like, oh God, I'm sorry that I've sinned. But then there must be an acknowledgement that that sin is actually a rebellion to God's lordship over our lives. Oh God, I'm sorry that I've sinned against you and your commands. After that, the corrective measure isn't better behavior on our part, but an acquiring of God's corrective measure in a New Testament sense on Christ's part. True repentance then acknowledges that apart from Christ and his death on the cross, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let me read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 to 8 says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Colossians 1. 13 to 14, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9, 22, the law requires that, every, that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And you could go on and on and on in your understanding of this through scripture. But friend, listen, you being sorry for sin isn't enough to correct your sin. And your right behavior isn't the solution to your sin problem. Only Jesus is. Only Jesus. Only his saving work on the cross corrects your sin. And true repentance acknowledges that, which, which, which would happen is then we realign us. It realigns us, the follower of Jesus, under his saving power and grace, rather than your ability to obey. 
There's a realignment that takes place. Repentance for disobedience is necessary because it turns you, the believer, back into alignment with the ways of God's salvation. Not with your proper behavior, although that will follow. And all along in Ezekiel, God says repeatedly, I wish you'd repent and come to me to be saved. Ezekiel 33.11, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn! Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Again, it makes no sense. But then, the Lord reminds us what the people said. Instead of repenting, they're trying to justify themselves again and again in verse 17. It says, the way, they say, they protest, the way of the Lord is not just. That's how they come back to him. But then the Lord responds, but it is their way that is not just. If a righteous person turns from their righteousness uh, and does evil, they will die for it. And if a wicked person turns away from their wickedness and does what is just and right, they will live by doing so. Yet you Israelites say, the way of the Lord is not just, but I will judge each of you according to your own ways. How are you doing with sin these days? Some of you, and I would imagine it's probably more the younger ones of us, who wrestle with certain sins more certain reoccurring sins even. I say younger not because we older believers don't sin anymore. It's just that I think sometimes a dullness creeps in to our sins because we've grown too tired to care. And so we don't take our sins very seriously anymore. How are you doing with sin these days is a tough question to answer. Maybe, they have to, maybe it has to do more with your character, your sins. Or maybe your sins have to do more with your conduct. Maybe it's something you do with your work or with your relationships or maybe your sexuality. What are you doing with your sins these days? Are you acknowledging that those sins are not just mistakes and so belittling them, but really that you make them a really big deal and you understand that they are a rebellion to the Lord? Have we forgotten that all sin is a rebellion to the lordship of God in our lives? God takes that seriously. I would imagine that you know by experience at least that the longer you belittle your sins, the less sorrowful you are. And when you are no longer sorrowful for your sin before long, you will not know the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And after a while, your sins just won't bother you anymore. And day after day, you will go on sinning without caring. When and how do you deal with your sin? That's an important question. I'll give us a chance to consider that later. Let's move on to verse 21. In verse 21, a refugee who escapes the fallen city reports the destruction of Jerusalem to those who are in Babylon. Verse 21. In the twelfth year of our exile... In the tenth month, on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. Most of chapter 33 is more of the same. The people were sorry that they were in this predicament that they were in, but they continued to refuse to repent and to turn to the Lord to be saved. 
Let's move into chapter 34. Chapter 34 turns our attention to the shepherds of Israel, the priests. They were the ones who should have kept the people on track spiritually and morally. But they didn't. And they didn't because they had neglected the word of the Lord and they neglected to uphold the laws and the covenants of God. Let's read verses 1 to 6, chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Verse 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every, hill, on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. If you remember back a few chapters, not only did the people practice idolatry, but Israel's shepherds, her priests, were complicit in all of Israel's sins, even allowing idolatry, along with child sacrifice, to take place near and within the temple that they were supposed to protect. Those who should have known better, those who should have taken care of the Lord's flock, literally abandoned them to the wolves. Interestingly, when you come into the New Testament, who do you find constantly confronting the sheep or the, the, the priests, the shepherds? Let's look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Any of that ring a bell to chapter 34 here? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a, what? Shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest fields. Saying that his sheep were scattered, he's saying that the people are really still living in exile. They're still leaderless. The situation hasn't changed for them. Israel's teachers were still not taking, taking care of the sheep. They were still ruling over them harshly. Mark chapter 6, verse 32 to 34. One day Jesus and his disciples went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving, recognized them, ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a, what? Shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Why is this important? Well, listen to the word of Yahweh through the prophet Ezekiel. Every time I read, I will, and then the sentence, read that I will out loud with me, if you will. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 to 16. It's up here on the overhead. 
For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his flock, his scattered flock, when he is with them. So will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be, will be their grazing land. Then, or sorry, there they, will be, there they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the, uh, but the sleek and the strong will, I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. I will, declares the Lord. Yahweh speaks of himself, right? I will do these things, he repeatedly says. And so when Jesus is declaring in John chapter 10, for instance, another one of these passages in the New Testament, verses 14 to 17, and he says, I am the good shepherd. Who's he claiming to be? Yahweh. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. In other words, Gentiles. And I will bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who is Jesus? Could it be any clearer about who his identity is? He is the sovereign Lord of Ezekiel's day, the good shepherd who shepherds the sheep of God. And now in Jesus' day, he is proclaimed as the sovereign Lord, manifested in human flesh as the divine Son of God who shepherds the people of God. Do we need any more reinforcement than that? Well... There is more. Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 11. Every Jewish scholar understands that this is a messianic text. In other words, it's pointing ahead to when Messiah finally comes, who they do not see as Jesus, remember. Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 11. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your what? God, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. I know that Ezekiel is a complicated book and some of you probably have been wondering over these last few weeks, when is this going to end? When are we going to get on to something a little bit more friendly? But it's very clear when you read the prophecies of Ezekiel and you connect it back to what the gospel writer said about Jesus, that very clearly equates Jesus with the God of the Old Testament. You can't be any clearer. And so if you ever read the Gospels and the New Testament because it's just easier, then you're going to miss all these details that come out in the Old Testament, especially in books like Ezekiel that are hard to read. 
Jesus as God in the flesh is not a New Testament doctrine. It is not a creation of the early church. His divinity and his oneness with the Father is rooted in all of the Old Testament. And that's why we study it, right? And as Ezekiel points to the incarnation of Jesus in his ministry as as a shepherd of Israel, there is also a more future reference here. His shepherding of his people, the people of God, continues at his second coming as well, when the Son of Man returns. Pick it up in verse 17 of Ezekiel 34. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Does that sound familiar to you? Matthew 25. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest, of your feet, the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you, uh, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another, and I will place over them one shepherd, one sh- uh, ser- my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them, and, the Lo- and I, the Lord, have spoken. Did you catch Yahweh's ability to distinguish between sheep and sheep and rams and goats? The point here is that just because you are an Israelite, he's talking to the Jews here, a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, does not guarantee your membership in God's flock. The Jews in Ezekiel's day thought that. They thought, whoa, as as, as long as the temple's standing, God is among us, we are God's people, we're good. Well, now it's destroyed. But there was a remnant, remember. And being part of the remnant, being saved, is all about... Believing loyalty to Yahweh. It's about being repentant and turning to the Lord for salvation. And as Yahweh says in verse 24, only the sheep who follow the Davidic shepherd are the ones who are his true sheep. I, the Lord, have spoken, he says. And who is that Davidic shepherd as revealed in the New Testament as we've already seen? Jesus, right? The descendant of David, born in the city of David. None of this referencing is accidental, folks. It's absolutely crystal clear who God is talking about in Ezekiel 34. Now, this referencing here in 34 is deliberate because it identifies Jesus as God's good shepherd. Let's look at what else Yahweh is deliberate about. Verse 25, Ezekiel 34, 25. I will make a covenant of peace with them, And rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The the trees of the field will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops and the people will be secure in the land. They will know that I am the Lord when when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. Who gives us a different kind of yoke? Jesus. 
They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. What's he getting at here? Specifically, he will make a new covenant in the future with his sheep. That is the Davidic, the followers of the Davidic king. And this new covenant will put an end to their exile. Will put an end to their scorn and their shame among the nations. And that's what's meant by phrases like verse 27. The people will be secure in their land. Verse 28, they will no longer be plundered by the nations. Verse 29, they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. And then he seals that promise of new covenant with similar wording to the old covenants of Abraham, Moses, and David. He says in verse 30, Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. When did this happen? Pentecost. Because that's, what these passage, that's where all these passages get quoted from. When, when maybe you hear Bible prophecy teachers say that this is about the regathering of Israel in 1948, when Israel becomes a na- became a nation again. Well, like we learned back in Ezekiel chapter 11, though Israel, as a nation, got unified together politically in 1948, they were still not unified spiritually in their devotion to Yahweh. They still denied Jesus as their Davidic king, didn't they? They were still not his flock. Israel, yes. His flock, no. But who is that true of? The church. It was at Pentecost that God, through the Holy Spirit, reclaimed not only Israelites who believed in Jesus, but also anyone from all the other nations who believed, and he brought them all into one flock under one shepherd. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Uh, Verses 1 to 4 is when the Holy Spirit came down. Now we'll go to uh, verse 5. So that'll be the next slide there. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, the Holy Spirit coming, the mighty wind, the speaking in tongues, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. In other words, Gentiles. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Well, what do we know that this means? This is the arrival of the Holy Spirit joining both Jew and Gentile believers in Jesus together as one new people. 
And I know that there are those in the, who are kind of end times fans and they really want to make a big deal about ethnic Israel at the end of the age. And God does have some things lined up for ethnic Israel, but God doesn't just want ethnic Israel saved. And in fact, it isn't even about ethnic Israel anymore. It's about a new Israel, the church. And as the book of Acts chronicles and the letters to the churches record, such as Galatians 3, 26 to 29, so in Christ Jesus, you, were, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Listen to this. There is, no, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So for sure, ethnic Israel is loved by God, and there are some activities around the nation of Israel in the end times that will take place, but if we try to suggest that there is a special plan of salvation for ethnic Israel, one that is different than the plan that Yahweh has for the other nations of the world, then friends, that borders on heresy. Only those who follow Jesus, the Davidic king, will be given eternal life. And it's at the second coming of our Davidic king that his own words will find fulfillment. Verse 30 of 34. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, the new Israel, the church, are all my people declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. So where does this section of Ezekiel leave us? Chapters 33 and 34. I think it leaves us with a number of questions that we need to answer before leaving here today. The first one is this. In what ways are you serving as a watchman for your city and for your life network? Do the people closest to you, those associated to you, do they know, have they heard from you that there is salvation in Jesus? That there is coming a day of judgment and that they can escape it? Have they heard that? Number two, how are you handling your sin? Have you taken your sins seriously enough that you still see them and sorrow over them? Do you see them as a, as a rebellion, as an idolatry before the Lord and His Lordship? Thirdly, your repentance, has it been thorough enough? Has it been thorough enough? Sometimes people come into the Christian faith because they like the blessings that Jesus can give. The gift of eternal life, the gift of a constant companion, the gift of relief from guilt, all those things, a new community to live among. But they never really repent of all their sins. They never truly bow to the lordship of Jesus and follow him daily. They come to church, maybe, but there's still things, sins in their lives that they're not willing to give up. They may even say, oh, Lord, I've sinned. This bothers me. 
they won't repent of them. Has your repentance been thorough enough coming into the kingdom of God? And what about since coming into the kingdom of God? Do your ongoing sins, and I know we all sin. Scripture says we all sin. If we, don't, if we think we don't, we're fools and liars. But how do you deal with your sin nowadays? Do you just kind of, oh, well, God will forgive? Or do you deal with them in repentance? Perhaps a thorough house cleaning is necessary for you one of these days. I would encourage you to either end your day or begin a day with a cleaning out of your suitcase. What I mean by that is if you're living in your home and maybe there's a suitcase that you kind of reserve for your stuff, things that you're trying to maybe hide from God, or the things that are constantly being kind of pulled out of that suitcase for your own self then put back, or are you willing to clean out that suitcase? Are you willing to clean out all the stuff that you're trying to hide from God? Has your, has your repentance been thorough enough, my friends? There's a, apparently a revival taking place down south in, at Asbury College. Uh, whether it is or not, I don't know. I haven't really looked into it much, but clearly the Lord has gripped the people who are attending there. And it has been very clear through the testimonies that I've been hearing that the Lord has done an amazing work there because of their realization of their need to repent. That happened first, and then revival came. Now, only dead people need to be revived. If you are alive in Christ and are living each day free of sin, then perhaps you don't need all this. But I think all of us could spend some time reevaluating and saying, Lord, has my repentance been thorough enough lately? Am I still seeing sin like you see sin? Fourth, who is your great shepherd? Do you have a personal relationship with the, with the great shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus? Are you part of his flock? And as he asks, are you attentive to his voice? He says, my sheep listen for my voice. I know them and they follow me. Is it clear from the evidence of your life that you're following Jesus to others? Let's pause for a moment to pray. Lord God, I know it is uncomfortable for someone to sort of come in and try to, I don't know, bring this kind of stuff out. Oh, Pastor, if you could have only just talked on something else today. But Lord, all of us have sins that we have committed. Some of those sins are repetitious. All sin is sin. And Lord, you've given us a pathway this morning to deal with that sin thoroughly. And it is through Jesus Christ. Our acknowledgement of his way of salvation being the only way. That we not only have to confess our sin, but we have to lean in deeply to his ability to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to go that far, to be that thorough today. 
Perhaps there's some sins that have been committed against another person. Perhaps you need to go to someone today and make recompense. Perhaps it's been a long time since you've cleaned out your suitcase or allowed the Lord to look into it. Today would be a good day to seek the Lord. Father, we are grateful for your word. It's it's uncomfortable. It can be painful. But in the end, it always brings salvation. So I pray for my friends here today, fellow wanderers sometimes, fellow sheep. Lord, we declare our loyalty today to the Davidic king, Jesus. We are so glad to be part of his flock. And we are so grateful for his care and for his teaching. Lord, today we listen for your voice. We know you know us. And Lord, today we choose to follow you in saving grace. In your name we pray, amen.